You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. Over the last number of years, I've been uh, thinking about what it means to do theology from a non uh, socio-political dominant context. So I grew up in America, which has been the most powerful nation in the world uh, my entire life. Um, and after the Cold War, it's been the sole superpower in the world. And um, what kind of difference that makes in the way that we approach theology or the way to be personal, the way that I approach theology. What have I learned uh, as a result of being an American rather than simply being a Christian? So the Lord has given me opportunities to travel in different places around the world, and I've been able to engage Christians around the world, not all of whom uh, held the same kinds of positions or understood every scripture the way that uh, that I grew up understanding it. And so recently I've been uh, reading through and studying and listening to uh, Rene Padilla and uh, some of the um, Global South uh, approaches to scripture and understandings of scripture uh, connected with John Stott and so um, I'm going to be talking to Dr. David Kirkpatrick today. He's a scholar of religion and politics at the intersection of Latin America and the United States at James Madison University. And he's written a book, and we're going to talk a little about the book and then a little outside the book. The book's called A Gospel for the Poor, Global Social Christianity and the Latin American Evangelical Left. Looks really fascinating. Uh, so he, so we're going to be talking about liberation theology. We're also going to be talking about what's called social Christianity, which John Stott, uh, embraced, um, after meeting with a lot of these Latin American, uh, maybe South American, uh, theologians. And so, um, this is a good conversation. I hope it, um, I hope it doesn't scare you off for one, because we're not going to be embracing liberation theology by the time it's over. Uh, but it does uh, help us open our minds a little bit as to how does theology develop in a sp- in a specific context? Uh, how does it develop if you're underneath, uh, if you're in an oppressed situation, you're not in the dominant uh, context, but you're in the oppressed or exploited context? How does theology develop that's different from maybe those who are embedded with the authoritative government or whatever? Uh, so these are some things I've been thinking through and rolling over in my mind, and I hope that this is uh, an encouraging interview for you as well. I'm happy today to have uh, on Uncommentary Dr. David Kirkpatrick. He's a scholar of religion and politics 
at the intersection of Latin America and the United States at James Madison University. He's written several books, one of which is A Gospel for the Poor, Global Social Christianity, and the Latin American Evangelical Left. I will say that this is the longest subtitle (laughs) that I have uh, seen on a book recently, so you should get an award for that. I appreciate that. I'll be looking for the plaque in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you have a book under contract that you're working on, Blood and Borders, Violence, and the Origins of the Global War on Christians. When's that due out? A uh, good year and a half. Still oh, got okay. to finish it. Well, you got the title down. So that's, I mean, that is a step in the right direction. We've improved the subtitles, I think, as that's we true. went along, maybe. <laughs> that's true. I don't know, dude. That's pretty long itself. Maybe you cut off like two characters and that's it. <laughs> Uh, so James Madison is in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Is that right? That's right. Shenandoah Valley. Shenandoah Valley. Suffering for Jesus up there. I'm telling you. That's right. Um, so David Kirkpatrick, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, um, that's kind of the official like LinkedIn or academic in bio that I just read. Tell everybody a little bit about who you are apart from your academics. Yeah. Off the. Off the recording here, we were talking about I grew up in Wisconsin, and I did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh, so I got to spend a nice few years out there in the United Kingdom, and I stayed on on the faculty there uh, in the Center for the Study of World Christianity, uh, which was a wonderful time, and then joined Florida State University for a couple years, two years uh, there in Tallahassee, Florida, and then I joined uh, James Madison University a few years ago. Now it's uh, my fourth academic year. And uh, I teach all of our global Christianity classes, intro to Christianity, uh, Latino and Latin American Christianity, uh, and then global Christianity. Right now, I'm teaching a capstone class on the global civil rights movement. So I get to teach a lot of neat classes kind of around the intersection of of Christianity and social movements, kind of the impact of it on on culture and um, what's happening happening in the world in terms of politics. So it's a, it's a great time. I say it's the best job in the world. And um, like you said, I just, uh, I'm getting close to finishing the second book. And I know we're talking about gospel for the poor, but uh, also finishing up a, a co-edited volume on religious violence with my colleague who's at Arizona state university. And, uh, but yeah, this book, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to have a conversation about a gospel for the poor. Cause I think uh, so many relevant themes to what's happening in the world today. And of course, one of the main characters, Rene Padilla, just passed away this mm-hmm. year, and I got a chance to write his obituary for Christianity Today, which was pretty neat. But we'll get into some, some of those stories, I'm sure. Yeah. So first, I want to say um, you must have gone to college. You must have been like a savant and gone to college when you were 12 years old, because I can't believe <laughs> that you're on your fourth uh, college stint right now, because you honest to goodness look like you're about 25 years old. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I should mention I'm married to my wife, Anna. We've got two boys. And so that always makes, whenever I feel like, wow, I need to be, you know, my students need to know that I'm old enough to be teaching this class. When I tell them about my kids and, you know, all that's going on there, then I think I have no problem separating myself from them. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I did graduate college a year early, if that's if that's what we're looking for here. And uh, okay. kind of just all went right. through, just went through everything one, you know, one after the other and, and got it done. So that's but, awesome. My sons have aged me a lot. I appreciate that. I don't think you, I think you're the only one who would say that now. That well, it's all that coconut oil you put on your face at night. I know how <laughs> that works. Right. <laughs> I applied that at the beginning of this recording. <laughs> oh man! So I have had uh, over the years a, um, a first a passing and then a growing interest on liberation theologies, 
Um, I don't even know how it started. Uh, I picked up a book um, that was written. I, I, I meant to find it uh, before the thing, and I, and I didn't. Um, and I can't think of who the name, but it was one of the early guys wrote a book. It's really small on liberation, the, a, a theology of liberation, I think is the name of it, a revolutionary yeah. theology of liberation, something like that. And so um, I read that and then I studied, studied, I say studied, read over, uh, became aware of, um, you know, black liberation theology. And then there's Palestinian liberation theology. Now there's liberation theology from Central America. There's a liberation theology from South America. My guess is there's liberation theologies from other parts of the world that have risen out of um, scenes of oppression and exploitation. And for me, being in the dominant culture of the most powerful nation in the world my entire life, I never encountered or had the need, let me say, to encounter any kind of liberation or theology that would have supported that kind of thought. So at the outset, why don't you talk a little bit about liberation theology generally? What is it? How does it arise? What gives birth to the thinking? Those kinds of things. And we'll kind of move into some of the book. Yeah, great. I appreciate that. And, and and what you're referring to in you know the reading of text, we see already in especially in the 70s, this I would say a turn toward context, where we're gonna get a lot of different readings of texts from LGBT readings, feminist readings, and you know, black black readings of text and more of a recognition of of the positionality of the reader being, you know, important for whatever text you're reading. So right off the bat to say it's not just the reading of the Bible or theology that's going to going to have this kind of reading a turn toward context, but it's going to be across lots of different literatures. For Latin America, the big moment is going to be in 1959 when we have the Cuban Revolution, mm. forces loyal to Fidel Castro, who throw off Fulgencio Bautista, and it's this big moment, especially for the generation that's coming of age at that time, where you know at the time it really feels like. American influence in the region is inevitable, that it's, you know, uncontestable. And the fact that the U.S. had such an interest in in Cuba and was kind of so clearly defeated, and even more so as time goes on, you know, get, get the Bay of Pigs invasion and, mm. and the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the U.S. really sees some embarrassments on the, on the global stage. So you get this sense for this generation that American imperialism could be thrown off and that this foreign influence in the region was not inevitable. And so there, there was a need for, for real Latin American independence, not just in politics, but also in, in economics. So we're going to see theories of dependency in politics that grows in the UN and other places. We're going to see in theories of education, Paulo Freire is going to talk about pedagogy of the oppressed. And then in theology, you know, you mentioned theology of, um, Liberation, Gustavo Gutierrez, Rubem Alves, Julio uh, Santa Ana, um, uh, very influential generation, Juan Luis Segundo, are going to begin to write about, okay, if, if this is taking place in education, if this is taking place in politics, in other regions, what about religion? Mm-hmm. And of course, the big moment for Christianity is going to be 62 to 65, where the Second Vatican Council of the Catholic Church takes place. And so, you know, it's, it's only a few days after the Cuban revolution that John the 23rd calls the Second Vatican Council of the Catholic Church. At the time, it's shocking. But in hindsight, 
it wouldn't have been as shocking when we know the interest that the Catholic Church is losing in Cuba and all mm-hmm. across Latin America as this threat happens. So this this generation of Latin Americans take as inspiration the Second Vatican Council to reassess theologies and their their approach to the Bible. And so what what a gospel for the poor, my book, I think one of the main contributions is Catholics are not the only one. Mm-hmm. We know the Catholic story. But Protestants and particularly evangelicals from the same generation mm-hmm. of Pope Francis, from of Pope Francis, Gustavo Gutierrez, that whole generation, evangelicals like Samuel Escobar, Rene Padilla, Orlando Costas, they're intervarsity staff workers and missionaries at university campuses that are feeling the same tremors, the same pressures at the same time, mm-hmm. and they're also responding. So Every social Christianity from that time is not liberation theology, but responding to this particular political moment. So the book opens with um, uh, Carl F.H. Henry and the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism and, uh, and Padilla and their engagement, which I had just found out about because I'm way behind on everything uh, that has to do with anything important. And so I did talk to Mark Knoll about that a little bit on the podcast a couple of episodes ago um, that Lausanne comes around in the mid seventies and Padilla has influence over Henry as do other, I'll say third world, but poor country evangelicals and shifts a lot of what was happening. Stott's involved in this. He's already mentioned in the book after like page XXI. Yeah. You know, um, so talk a little bit about how that came to pass, because it's in the time frame that you're talking about. Um, what, what was significant about that move? Yeah, and that's what I find interesting about the story, as I was able to you know, travel across the world uh, to Buenos Aires, to Spain, get you know, documents from Costa Rica, and, you know, all around the world is to see this was not a story of Latin America to the rest of the world or, you know, even the global south to the global north, but this is a real, especially in evangelicalism, a multi-directional conversation where, like you mentioned, Carl Henry's in Latin America with, you know, many of these main characters, John Howard Yoder's, you know, on his sabbatical in Latin America, John Stott's camping with Padilla's family in the Patagonia (laughs) mountains uh, and really being influenced by what's, you know, what's happening in the region. So especially for, for evangelicals who are so globally connected this is a real global conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, now Henry, th- there's so many stories with Carl Henry, I think that haven't really been told, even ones that I don't tell in the book. And I tell in an article that I, that I published in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, where um, Orlando Costas is on the faculty of Seminario Biblico Latinoamericano, which is one of the flagship evangelical seminaries in the region. It's run by Latin America Mission, which is a big Latin America mm-hmm. mission agency. And uh, Costas leads the charge for Latin Americans to take control of SBL. And they finally, I would say, wrest control from American missionaries mm. and begin to explore some of these themes similar to liberation theology. Well, Henry's not a big fan, writes about it in Christianity Today, and gets involved in this big controversy where Costas and others accuse him of being paternalistic and you know, seeking to take back control uh, of Latin America. Um, and, you know, Henry doesn't necessarily want to get involved. Behind the scenes is actually Harold Linzel, if you know that name, who yeah, actually man. In, in, invites him and says, hey, can you go find out what's happening at SBL when you're down there? 
And, uh, and he blames Harold Lindell for getting involved in this. So all that to say, there's these fascinating clashes about who gets to decide what evangelicalism is, who gets to decide what theology is that's, that's, you know, faithful to the Bible, who gets to decide, um, what the parameters are and what political engagement is. These things play out, not even, not just in personal letters, but also in the pages of places like Christianity Today. I think a really relevant story to even some of the clashes that are happening today over, you know, CRT and race and, and you know, all these issues where 60s and 70s evangelicals are having very similar conversations, same, very similar, you know, I might say hysteria over, you know, this is a Marxist or this is a communist. Mm-hmm. If someone is saying, why are we poor? Why are we, you know, under this oppression of, you know, for Costas, it was the American empire as a Puerto Rican. So fascinating encounters with, with people like, like Henry and Stott and their, you know, Stott especially is one of the reasons these ideas go global because he becomes convinced that, that the gospel has a social dimensions Mm -hmm. and gives them breathing room to say, no, this is, this is a conversation we need to have. So let's, let's avoid the, the uh, mistake that's often made. And let's let you define liberation theology as a an overview, a body, whatever you however you want to drill down on it. Tell us what liberation theology is, and then how it either does or is perceived to differ from what we would just say normal evangelical theology. Yeah, that's good. So, I mean, I'll talk about Gustavo Gutierrez because he's one of the main, you know, probably the, the biggest and most influential voice here. He's going to talk about theology as a second act. So your first act is going to be to engage in the liberation of the poor. And he says, theology only happens at sundown. Your second act then is going to go in, is going to be going to the text. Um, even now that you're already on the side of the poor. And so this method then is going to be one of, um, of taking marching orders from this political praxis among the poor um, theology is a reflection. Theology is not, um, you know, the priority of first reading the Bible, but the priority of praxis, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So they're going to say, you know, if somebody comes in and says, hey, you're using the Exodus narrative to say, you know, we need to be liberated from the American empire and poverty here. That's not what the Bible means in this passage. They're going to say, are you on the side of the poor? Are you taking this side uh, in terms of liberating them, because you need to go back to square one. That's where you're going to be able to understand then what we're saying here. And they're going to use Marxism. They're not going to embrace Marxist socio-scientific analysis fully, but they're going to say, if it's helpful for us to say, here's what it means to be a faithful Christian, it's to take on the ruling class, or it's to you know break um, oppressive systems where um, workers are being exploited, these types of things, then we're going to use it. They're going to equally offend, uh, you know, kind of pure Marxists who say they're not using Marx correctly, and they're going to equally offend people who are, um, who are, you know, on the evangelical side of reading the Bible. So people like Padilla, Padilla is going to write, Rene Padilla, the Ecuadorian theologian, is going to write the first article for Christianity Today on liberation theology. And he's going to say, um, we need to listen to the prophetic voice of liberation theology, that they're saying, you know, the poor are oppressed here, that there's something about theology that's foreign, that's not in our history, in our time, in our space, but it's taking an ideological straitjacket on the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's not allowing, you know, the author's meaning and, you know, what God is intending here to speak, but rather taking 
a political program and putting it pro forma over the Bible. So I think it's really, especially that reading of the text, that method of liberation theology that many evangelicals are going to disagree with, that theology comes second and that the, the political engagement, the political liberation of the poor is going to come first. That reading of the text is one that a lot of evangelicals are going to disagree with. There's this great quote from Terry Eagleton, uh, the British literary critic, who is a Marxist and, as far as I know, is an atheist, uh, at least an agnostic. Um, and again, I can't remember the name of the book that I've read like three times. Uh, but he says this, all theology is liberation theology. And I think it's just a phenomenal quote um, because as I read slave passages from the United States or as I read liberation theology from other places, there there is a, when Jesus says he's come to liberate us, why is that limited to our spiritual being? Why does that not affect our physical being? And again, referring to myself, I've never had to ask that question. It's never been an issue. Now, if I was, you know, shot down over Korea and kept at a POW camp or something, maybe so. But, um, but as far as generations and at the bottom of the economic totem pole and all those kinds of things, I've never had to deal with those issues. And so when, when I read that Jesus has come to liberate me, my only relation to that is the idea of my sin against him. But as I read Africans, uh, African-American slaves from American history. And they're saying, no, he's come to liberate my body. He's come to set me free from these actual chains, not just metaphysical chains. Well, I can't say, no, you're wrong <laughs> because it seems like to me that everywhere in the world, you have oppressed people and they read that verse. They immediately know that it applies to both. It applies to their eternal spirit and it applies to their temporal body. So is that kind of, um, is it that kind of move that we see in liberation theologies where people are applying uh, verses to themselves physically that others in, in the upper echelons maybe, or that haven't been affected in the same way are only applying spiritually? Yeah. And I think what's interesting about, I appreciate that. I think what's learning, what's interesting about learning from history here is that I think a lot of evangelicals would find interesting how people like even Billy Graham, Carl Henry Stott are gonna are going to come face to face with the reality that there are more evangelicals living in Africa, Asia, Latin America than anywhere else in the world. There are more evangelicals living in poverty and oppression and injustice, and that they didn't notice certain things in Scripture because of their positionality in. Um, you know, Padilla is going to talk about going to Wheaton College and living in the suburbs, uh, mm -hmm. you know, American suburbs, and how the suburbs is going to inoculate people against seeing what's really, you know, happening in mm -hmm. scripture. So for people like these characters, you know, Samuel Escobar and Padilla, they're not looking to, they want to say, this is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. This is this is not us saying, hey, under, even just understand our plight, but that scripture is from a context where you know, the Roman empire is oppressing the Jews. You have a context of empire. You have mm -hmm. a context of marginalization and all these themes that we see when, why, why do we see all these themes of like the woman who's bleeding and Jesus reaches out to her and seems so random or the, or the man who's probably Mark who runs away naked, scared. Right. And these, these just so totally random stories yeah. that don't make sense. If you don't understand Jesus's centering of marginalized peoples. And so for people like, those who are interested in Mission Integral, which is what Padilla and Escobar and others call their approach to theology, they're interested in saying, this is actually 
the scriptural message. This is what evangelicalism is. And that's what they're fighting for. They don't want to say this is something new. They don't want to say this is liberation theology. This is evangelical theology. So that's good. Yeah. And this is what Jesus is, is serious about. And this is what his people should be serious about too. Talking to the, uh, David Kirkpatrick about liberation theology. Uh, his book is a gospel for the poor. And we're talking about that and some themes uh, around the book. And I'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give two fifty a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly, and these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone, and really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Well, I think the Cold War, at least according to the author of this book I'm looking at, David Kirkpatrick, uh, there's, there's a chapter of this. Let's say it that way. There's a chapter in history not just in the book that uh, connects liberation theology inside the framework of the cold war. So explain a little bit about what that means. Well, the cold war is this, is this moment, right? Where uh, several decades where um, this battle between Moscow and Washington for countries that we consider in the global South today. Um, and this is where we're going to get that term third world that mm -hmm. you have those aligned with Moscow, those aligned with Washington and those kind of in the middle. This is going to be a defining moment, a defining phase, a defining period for this generation of Pope Francis and Gustavo Gutierrez and Padilla um, that they're coming of age under oppressive military regimes, this backlash against the Cuban revolution. If you remember uh, che Guevara is part of the Cuban revolution and he promises we're going to export this revolution all across Latin America. Hey, let me, uh, let me just, let me stop you right there for a second and give everybody the normal American pronunciation of Che Guevara. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, you can show him a picture of the t-shirt and then That's they'll know, right. they'll know who he is. So That's Che Guevara, right. right. The, the Argentine doctor. And he promises, he says, we're going to export this revolution all across Latin America, scares everybody in their, you know, out of their boots. Mm. Rather than getting these Marxist-led revolutions, the vast majority of Latin American countries receive military regimes and oppressive mm -hmm. uh, uh, military-led governments. And so 
for people who are growing up, for these theologians and these Christian leaders who are growing up in this context, the idea of of oppression and poverty and injustice is their their everyday reality. For Protestants, they're doubly marginalized because they are, of course, the religious minorities. Mm -hmm. People like Padilla and Escobar and others are growing up uh, unable to attend local schools because they're Protestant. Some are going to experience violence. Padilla does, um, trying to enroll in school. He's stoned as a child. He's, uh, assassination attempts against him as they're trying to plant churches. And so this, this context of the Cold War is one that is shaping their view, not only of the world. Of course, this shapes their view of the U.S. It shapes their view of, you know, of geopolitics, but it's also shaping their reading of the Bible where they're finding themselves longing for answers to, okay, the Cuban revolution, Marxist movements, college students who are alongside me are saying, here's the answer to, to this yawning gap between the rich and poor, to all of these problems. Where's the answer for us as religious minorities in Latin America? Um, can we find it in the pages of scripture? And they're, they're searching for it in the place that they know best. That's really, um, I, I think that's the point that most Americans don't quite grasp when we're talking about liberation theology. And that is that there seems to be, and you can please do correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there always seems to be a dominant theological influence in the area. So whether it's Central America, South America, or the Cold War, the con the context, there's a dominant theological system. And sometimes, if not every time, that dominant theological system is seen as embedded in the structures that are keeping these other people oppressed and in their reading of scripture, their understanding of the Bible, they shouldn't be now being oppressed by the government. Maybe we can understand that, but we certainly shouldn't be being oppressed by the religious people that are supposedly our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what is the Bible? So this is why I sometimes say that liberation theology arises as a response to uh, dominant theologies that aren't getting the job done for lack of a better way to say it. So whether it's Catholicism or whether it's a state church of some sort, you have a reaction to that because the people that aren't part of that are crying out, not unlike the children of Israel in the wilderness from which the Exodus then becomes the motif that God would deliver them. And so they go to the scriptures and they find out that God has delivered people. God does deliver people and they begin to call. And so their theology ends up looking different. And I'm not making a blanket agreement of that. I'm just talking about how it comes, how it comes into fruition. Am I right or wrong on that? Yeah. And I think, I think the framing is helpful to say that everyone's developing a contextual theology that just because one doesn't need the Bible to be speaking of liberation for the poor, because they're not poor, doesn't mean they're not being shaped by their own sociopolitical right. context. Mm -hmm. And what I find really interesting about our political moment today is that it's, it's much clearer now of course, post-Trump and all the things that are happening in our world to say that many American Christians are being shaped by politics. Right. I don't know if it was as clear five or 10 years ago to say that and, and to really you know, know that that's true kind of on the face of it. So what, what, what many of these characters are going to want to you know, say, Padilla and Escobar and others are going to say, we're not the only ones who are developing a theology based on where we are. There isn't theology, which is U.S., you know, white middle-class theology and then contextual theologies, but that everybody's developing something from, from their own context. And yeah, I mean, so I, and I want to clarify that these characters in the book in, in a gospel for the poor are also passionate about saying, 
what we're doing isn't Catholic liberation theology, mm-hmm. but we're responding to the same social and political context. We're responding to the same stimuli that Catholic liberation theology is. And we're, we're our own strand here. That's kind of a middle way between mm-hmm. conservative evangelical theology and liberation theology. But here's the social Christianity that they call mission integral or, or something unique um, down the middle. Um, and they're looking, so to define what they're doing, they see it as a synthesis of the offer of salvation, evangelical evangelism, and the pursuit of justice. Padilla calls it two wings of a, of a bird mm-hmm. that you can't fly without both of those. And that's what John Stott's going to be so deeply influenced by the, the British Anglican evangelical statesman is going to use that phrase. And he's actually going to get credit for it uh, for much of his life. Of and course. many, many places, if you just Google John Stott, you know, two wings of a plane, that's going to be his thing. And he gets it from Padilla and he, he acknowledges it, especially in his diaries. Um, but they're going to be passionate about saying, we're not liberation theology in the sense that whatever happens here is Catholic, but that there's this, a religious minority theology that's coming out mm-hmm. of this, that's then going to be exported all around the world. Uh, it almost like, sounds like the book of James, you know, faith and works. Yeah. I mean, if we've got time, I'd love to, I can tell a story of how Padilla, um, brought this to life. Uh, yeah, please do. I think we've got, yeah, go ahead and do that. Well, so I was in Buenos Aires. I'll, I'll say it quickly in 2013 and I'm on Padilla's campus of, of the, uh, campus of integral mission where it's a sustainable community there. And we got lunch with a man named Kike who became the director of their drug rehabilitation center. And Kike told the story of how he used to be strung out on drugs and he used to walk down the streets of Buenos Aires and used to create so much chaos as a drug addict, as an alcoholic, that the stores, uh, doors would close in front of him. Oh my goodness. And he used to get beat up by the police. And he said, every door, he looked over at me and he said, every door used to close to me, except the door to Renee Padilla's church. Wow. He said, they let me in. He said, I didn't believe in God. I wanted nothing to do with it. He said, then a second door opened to me. And that was the door to Renee Padilla's home. Wow. And he said, he said, David, this whole conversation was in Spanish. He said, David, uh, I met God at that dinner table. Mm. And Renee looked over at me and the only thing he had said to me in English for like, I think it had been like 10 days that we that he hadn't said a word of English to me. And he said, David, every human need is a mission field. Like he really wanted to emphasize that to say it in English. Like if mm. you, if you really aren't as good at Spanish as you seem like you're, you know, you are every human need is a mission field. And that was really the point of, of integral mission was to say um, that your soul and your body is in need of this, this redemption. That's what they were trying to get at. That's fantastic. Really quickly. I want you to touch on this idea of, um, I think you call it deporting American evangelicalism. Um, what is that a reference to and how does that help us? Yeah. So American missionaries had an outsized role in Latin America from the early 20th century. Uh, Americans, uh, flooded in as as missionaries and built churches and, and had, a, had a lot of influence in, in helping these churches grow. Um, American evangelicals were a little bit slower than a lot of other communities to uh, releasing leadership to mm-hmm. Latin Americans of churches and in organizations. So even as we get to the 50s and 60s, a lot of evangelical organizations and churches in the region are still led by Americans, mm-hmm. even though a lot of Latin American pastors and, and leaders like Padilla, I mean, Padilla did his undergrad and master's at Wheaton, did his PhD with F.F. Bruce at the University of Manchester, one of the leading wow. conservative evangelical biblical scholars. And even still, a lot of Americans felt like they couldn't trust Latin Americans to lead their own 
future and that they would be faithful to doctrine, that they'd be faithful to the Bible. And so I use that provocative phrase, deporting American evangelicalism, because this Cold War generation of Latin American evangelicals fought for control of their own theological destiny. They wanted to determine what it meant to be a faithful Christian in the region, what, it, what the Bible was saying to them in their own context. And in order to do that, they needed to metaphorically kick out a lot mm-hmm. of the American influence and to develop that themselves, give themselves their own space to do so. The book is a gospel for the poor, global social Christianity and the Latin American evangelical left. The author's Dr. David Kirkpatrick. You're on Twitter, but I can't remember your handle. DC underscore Kirkpatrick. EC or DC as in David C. Kirkpatrick. Excellent. Well, you guys follow him and uh, be sure to order the book from hearts and minds. If you can, Um, I actually having this conversation with you makes me want to like set aside the other seven books that I'm reading right now and um, read this one in one sitting. I don't know if that'll happen, but the subject matter is extremely intriguing to me. And I find it to be really important as an American to help understand um, how the gospel is viewed and presented in the rest of the world uh, by our brothers and sisters in Christ and to help me kind of fill out the, the blanks or the gaps in my own theology, my own thinking about the kingdom. And uh, I think this book is going to be a help. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to have this conversation. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, If you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Oh,